Thank you very much. Well, namaskar. Delighted to be here and thank you for inviting me. And thank you, Mukeshi, for a wonderful introduction. I don't know if I deserve all that, but I, I'll accept it. Uh, yeah. uh, thank you so much for your friendship and all the work that you've done over the years. On my way here, I took down a few points I want to uh, make sure I cover. The, the book that was just launched for, the, for Boston, we've done 25 launches in India, actually, very many events. The, the, the basic idea is not to tell you anything about Sanskrit, for which we have Sanskrit Bharati and other organizations. It's more about Sanskriti, our culture and our civilization. In fact, uh, Manjul Bhargav, the mathematician at Princeton, after we discussed it a while back, he says, you know, you should have called it the battle for Sanskriti. And I thought about it, actually. Not a bad idea. Because it, that's really what the topic, what the content of the book is, about Sanskriti. But I keep mentioning throughout the book Sanskrit and Sanskriti together, both of them, and I keep showing that one depends on the other. The Sanskriti is Sanskrit-based, and Sanskrit encodes and enacts and brings out the Sanskriti. So they're both interwoven, so either one is fine. But I don't want people to think that I'm teaching you Sanskrit per se, because for that we have Sanskrit Bharati and other excellent organizations. I'm here to talk about Sanskriti, our civilization. And the way this book is framed is a discussion on the views of insiders versus outsiders. Now, every tradition and every identity has people who are insiders, who are practitioners, who see that as their identity or their tradition. And then there are outsiders who look at it from an objective external point of view, which could be friendly or could be hostile. So, for example, uh, blacks have an identity and they were very concerned that the portrayal was done by whites. It was all done by outsiders. It was stereotypes and so full of stereotypes. So they wanted to start their own studies from their own point of view. Similarly, women started gender studies because male-dominated academy would stereotype them. So there have been many examples of insiders wanting to, uh, you know, contest what the outsiders have said. It's not like I'm inventing anything new. Uh, you will see this in uh, various religions. For instance, uh, you will see that, or, or and also uh, you will see that uh, in uh, in, uh, uh, in tense tense situations like uh, the term Islamophobia, if you search, you'll find millions of hits. Uh, it refers to uh, what it, practicing Muslims, who are the insiders, feel is an unfair representation by the people who are the outsiders. And so they, they, they feel that uh, they should define who they are, rather than letting outsiders define who they are. Now, in the same sense, I felt that our dharma needs a similar balancing out. And about 20, 25 years ago, the term Islamophobia is very popular. And there were awards being given for books on Islamophobia who were exposing the Islamophobia in the academy. A lot of uh, you know, courses on Islamophobia to show that there is such a stereotyping and it's wrong and negative and unfair. But there was nothing like Hinduphobia uh, in, in terms of uh, being a topic of conversation. And so I coined that phrase, Hinduphobia, started popularizing it just to get a conversation started on, you know, do we have Hinduphobia? Is there Hinduphobia? And I found that yes, indeed a large number of examples of Hinduphobia, where things were being defined by people who were not practitioners, people who had a stereotype of it, starting with the colonial legacy and continuing. 
but our people had not really the insiders have not really taken the responsibility and the initiative to take back the discourse so the discourse which had been there from colonial times seems to continue uh, because uh, our people just never bothered so since this book is on uh, a school of uh, indology which is the Sheldon Pollock school of indology it's one of the most important schools of indology probably the most influential school of indology today I've had many personal conversations with Pollock in Princeton and in New York because he's at Columbia and, and one of my questions has always been why has no one before me uh, done a critique of your work because you know a, a great scholar becomes important when people write critiques and, and uh, you know other than your students writing hagiographies and little articles here and there and how great you are nobody outside outside your sphere of influence has written a sweeping review and analysis of your work and he gave a very honest answer he says I never stopped them they're free to do it but they never did it so you see the point is it's not his fault it's like we just never bothered to do it we just never bothered to say okay this is hard work it's difficult work but let's do it whether we are right or wrong we will find out a debate will start a conversation will start so he said all these kind of things well let's contest where we want to and then let's hear the response and then a new conversation starts and we both learn from each other the idea is not that uh, they're all wrong or that we're all wrong but you know we, we they're complementary views the insider and outsider and you need to have a good balance so I'm trying to create that balance that's all I'm trying to do here okay I don't have the final word but I'm trying to start debates and conversations where uh, where they're needed but none have existed now the when you look at I'll first look at the outsiders and then I'll tell you about the insiders and I have problems with both so I, I'll critique both but first the outsiders if you look at the if you look at a, a point of view that Europeans had about India and Indian civilization you cannot lump all of them as one, as one group the German Indologists were developing ideas of India which would fit into a sense of German nationalism German superiority they were really uh, trying to understand the past of Germans uh, by looking at Sanskrit texts and calling it like their past the British had a different reason the British were studying us because they were running the Empire and they wanted to understand who are these people how do we rule them better how do we negotiate who hates whom who can be made to fight whom who I can buy out so they had a certain management uh, control kind of an agenda French had a different reason the French Indologists you know they were interested in their past as a Renaissance they were interested in the relationship between Sanskrit and Latin because they, that was their past and believe it or not they were Russian Indologists in, in the in the 1800s important Russian Indologists Italian Indologists now they brought different nuances because they all brought their own background into this and they were Americans you know people like uh, Emerson and Thoreau and then the whole American Orientalist societies which started in Harvard uh, they they call it uh, Orientalism in those days and after World War II it's called South Asian studies which is sort of the reincarnation of Indology if you will the British Empire transformed into the American Empire so it migrated across the Atlantic and a new term was created in the 50s there were some meetings with CIA Ford Foundation State Department saying that now that the world war is, is over and the British Empire is collapsing has collapsed 
So, how do we project the Western civilization superiority? All this is well documented. And so, uh, area studies were started to look at other areas of the world, the third world. So, there's South Asia, there was East Asia, there was all these kind of areas started to study them. Ford Foundation came into this business in a big way. And the concept of a South Asia was created. The previously, it used to be called Indian subcontinent. The concept of South Asia was created by the Americans actually. And so, there's a whole history of all these things and they, the, the domination of what is now called South Asian studies or, America, or Indology in the US or what I call American Orientalism. Uh, it, all these origins have been, have been from the, uh, the point of view of the West. It is not that uh, people in India started these studies. Uh, people in India are, are sort of outsourcing their, their services. Uh, they are available sometimes doing coolie work, very menial work of providing them what this shloka means and what's the translation of that and go get me a scan of this particular manuscript, doing the kind of basic dirty, dirty work of many of them. But, the, but putting it together into a thesis, into a theory, into coming up with an overall paradigm of the world and how you fit in and who you are is controlled from the United States, largely, like previously it used to be from Europe. So, this is, this is a serious issue. And I, I don't want you to think of me as, you know, right wing, left wing. I fly on both wings. I'm happy I don't want to mutilate one wing or the other. I just want to wake up the uh, Indians that this is an area where we are, we are not paying enough attention. We are too busy becoming individually successful uh, and we are not paying enough attention. Now, I will tell you that China studies is controlled by China. Uh, Japan studies controlled by Japan. Russia studies by Russia. Arab studies by the Arabs. Yeah? Islamic studies, a huge amount of Islamic uh, institutions and their funding controls the inside of you. Now, there is the outside of you. You will certainly get the Donald Trump view of Islam. But there will be for every one voice that comes out, tens of voices on the other side who are well in control, at least in terms of uh, spreading their knowledge about themselves to their own people. So, you see, the difference is that it's not because we have outsiders saying all these things. Everybody is saying everything about other people. But in our case, that we do not have enough high quality, high volume, high uh, you know, uh, output, uh, you know, uh, in control insiders. Uh, because the journals are controlled from the outside. The prestigious journals of India, Indology, are not in India. The editors are all based here, most of them. The prestigious conferences are in the West. You ask, uh, you go to the most, uh, I went uh, in my recent uh, tour, I went to so many Sanskrit universities, Sanskrit departments. Before that, I've been to, in previous courses, uh, travels, I've been to BHU, all kind of traditional places. And off the record, sometimes even on the record, the traditional Sanskrit scholars will tell me that they rather get their doctorate from the United States, either Harvard or Chicago or uh, you know somewhere in uh, Columbia or if in Europe Heidelberg or Oxford or something like that. They'd rather be uh, given a, uh, their paper accepted in a Western conference. It'll make their career back in India. That's the sort of thing. But in China, it's the other way around. The Chinese journals are controlled by Chinese. They're written in Mandarin. All Sanskrit studies journals are written in English. It's the only major world civilization which is studied from, like I'm speaking, because that's the that's the uh, that's the forum. Uh, you know, you to to reach out, 
we have we have accepted the authority and the domination so much that now we have to fight back on other people's language turf i have to come to their turf uh, in their idiom in their methods i have to understand them argue back bring it back to our people but in the case of china it's the other way around americans who want to become experts on china uh, uh, they have to go and request permission they will be given permission to study but the chinese will keep control of the final draft they will if you are not right writing in line they'll throw you out don't give you a visa next time i don't believe in that i'm not saying i'm not preaching don't blame me that i'm trying to make you as closed you know i'm not saying we should have censorship like they have but i'm just trying to give you what a proud civilization says they're saying that if you don't get it right and if you are making fun of us and you are dead wrong and you are mischievous then you know we we don't believe it. we don't accept you and when the chinese disown an american scholar of china it's very difficult for him to make his career they complain their articles in mainstream american press in new york times and various places there been articles and they study how do we crack this nut of chinese you know they are too tough same true of most places you won't get in if you are blatantly against them but in india they'll give you awards uh, chadam uh, 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 paul got a padam shri and uh, many others did and uh, got millions of dollars grant to do all this work become big celebrities we are colonized in the sense the chinese are not so we can think of becoming a superpower because our gdp will be 1% higher than theirs or we'll have more population than them we can talk about all of that but the point is mentally we are not together with a kind of an indian grand narrative that we all subscribe to we can we all fight with each other on what exactly it means but chinese have a sense of uh, the grandness of their narrative from the past confucian thought and you know taoism and what not and they're not scared to say this is who we are and you don't find us good well fine tough luck your problem so we are going to advance in our terms we don't have to succumb and bow to the west that's how they are doing it now the islam has a different approach to trying to assert their difference and distinctiveness from from the west and i'm not advocating either one i'm not advocating that we got to be like either one of those but we have to find our own way of uh, asserting who we are so that's the insider versus outsider uh, basic uh, issue now the outsiders in the united states are the focus of this and i call them american orientalism and i have a whole chapter that differentiates how american orientalism is not the same as european orientalism i i explain it it's a lot of uh, reasons why and i have tables comparing or you know european orientalism which i call orientalism 1.0 and american orientalism which is 2.0 how they're different okay and 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 so you cannot take criticisms we've had a lot of post colonial studies people indians are dominating in post colonial studies a lot of leftist people in that doing a very good job but generally they're critiquing the dead empire and generally they're critiquing the dead scholars of the past because they won't they're not giving you grants they're not going to affect your your career they're not going to come after you but they are not critiquing the living guys like i am okay they're not critiquing they're not critiquing the people who today are giving them grants and funds and getting them jobs and so on so they're not critiquing that so in a sense they've been appropriated and made part of the system so they can't critique it they have a conflict of interest they can't critique it because they're embedded inside this very establishment so this american orientalism that i i described has 
I, I see America having three layers. There is the deep culture. The deep culture. Then there is the institutional layer, which seems very neutral. You know, corporate institutions, academic institutions, government institutions, they seem very neutral, very fair, egalitarian. And then there is the pop culture, which is very globally friendly. You can, you can have, a, you know, you can have, a, a, you know, dosa, and then you can have a sushi, and you can have sitar music, and you can have, a, you know, jazz, and everything is kind of one village, everything is mixing up, and you, you, you feel that, if you see America as only the pop culture, you will think there is really no issue. But beneath the pop culture is the institutions, but beneath the institutions are, is the deep culture, which is very Judeo-Christian. And, and that is what people like Trump tap into. So it is not Trump who has invented anything new. That, that segment of Americans exists. He's just sort of pushing the buttons. It's, he's, not, he's not created that thinking. That thinking is this. He's just standing there and saying, okay, we can say it now. It's okay to talk about it. And more and more people joining in and saying, okay, you know, we can all join. So the fact that so many people join so quickly shows that all this xenophobia, whatever, whatever is going on, exists in the deep culture. So this deep culture, you have, to, you have to understand the origins of American Orientalism in the deep culture. Now this deep culture, a lot of the liberal people will say, okay, you're very right, we, we don't like those uh, right-wing uh, Christian type people, but we the left-wing are not part of it. And one of the major contests I bring out, uh, debates I bring out is that the American left is also part of what they call American exceptionalism. You go to you go to uh, Chris Matthews, MSNBC, about as left as it gets, and he said, I believe in American exceptionalism. Now, what exactly is American exceptionalism? I mean, they don't want Judeo-Christianity to frame their, what, what's unique about them. But this business of founding fathers and being the most innovative and being the frontier people and, and, and you know, triumphalism, uh, being the world standard, what in my previous book I called uh, Western universalism. Taking their history, their ideas, and saying these are universal, and against these, we are going to evaluate you. So it could be Hillary Clinton saying, we'll bring democracy to Iraq or democracy to Syria. Well, that's Western universalism. If there's an arrogance of superiority that what worked for me is something I'm going to project to you. So this idea that uh, our, your, your past, uh, sorry, your present, telling the other people, your present is similar to our past. We were like that. And where we are today is your future. So sort of like there's a, like Hegel said, there's a train, and the West is in the front, the engine driving, all the other people are behind, and being pulled by the West. And we're doing you a favor, this is the civilizing theory, the white man's burden, yeah, that we have to civilize you and we're to make you like us, okay? So whether it is the right-wing version which says we've got to evangelize and to convert you, your religion to Christianity, whether it's the left-wing version which says we've got to bring in American values and American idea of this and that, okay? That's, the, that's all Ameri Western universalism and that's all both the left-wing and right-wing are part of the, uh, the American Orientalism. Now sometimes when I address my white friends, I am, I'm Indian and I'm American, my kids are born and raised here, I'm not anti-American, I have a lot of uh, American friends, I think it's a great country and one of the things is we can talk like this. We, like, like blacks can talk, Hispanics can talk, uh, we can also talk. As Americans, we can also give our point of view. So when I'm addressing an audience of white people, which I often do, I tell them that uh, if you look at, if you go to 
marketing companies because they profile different kinds of people without being accused of racism. Marketing people can profile. And they won't be accused of gender because they profile what, how do you sell to men, how do you sell to women, and what do, what do, what are the preferences of blacks. They, 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 they can profile all that. In, in, so it's called, uh, uh, you know, some demographics, socio-demographics, psychographics. I learned that term psychographics in marketing. That's what Google does. It used to be direct marketing companies, but now Google profiles your psychographics, your behavior, what you click, what you buy, uh, tells a lot about you. It tells about your age, about your gender, about your social uh, economic status. All that is tracked and is not considered to be profiling, but it's marketing profiling in a sense. So if you look at marketing people who are probably more sophisticated than social scientists in terms of this kind of profiling, if you, if you ask what is the profile of liberal Americans, liberal whites, particularly women, you know what it is? The liberal white woman, one of the top few things is she goes to yoga. She's vegetarian. She believes in animal rights. She believes in the sacredness of nature. Okay? She believes in, in, in a lifestyle which is more nature and not this industrial lifestyle. So I go and tell them that, do you know this is all from Vedas? This is all appropriation. And one of the projects I'm doing is how, how the Indian, how the Hindu Buddhist ideas have informed the American left and the American liberalism. A huge amount of stuff actually of Indian origin has been reformulated and turned into this, this kind of stuff. So I, I, I have uh, quite a lot to say about uh, you know, the, the truths and, and myths about uh, this American Orientalism going on. So I'm not just a defensive guy saying, okay, you got my culture wrong. I'm also turning my gaze back on them and telling them a few things about them from my point of view. Yeah? So that's the, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the point of about uh, outsiders. Now, as far as insiders are concerned, it's not that championing the insider perspective does not mean that every insider is qualified and is doing a good job. It's like if, you, if I want to champion uh, an Indian cricket team, that doesn't mean that everybody who comes along is a good cricketer. It means we've got to pick the good ones, we've got to upgrade our standards, we've got to have better training academies, you know, we've got to weed out the ones who are no good, we've got to weed out the corruption. So improving your game improving your team if you want to create a home team of Indian insider Indology, which is what I'd like to champion, then we also need to critique the insiders. We ought to have better standards. We ought to upgrade them to a better level of performance. And what I find is that there are some, I would say there are different kinds of insiders. By, them, by that I mean people who practice our faith, who, who, uh, you know, who would say that I'm one of the insiders, who would self-define them as an insider themselves as insiders, as Hindus, or one of the variations, whatever the term they want to call it, they say Sanatana Dharma, whatever they want to say. Uh, there are some different segments. One segment of such people have already sold out. Now this may be not very good news, but they have sold out. When I was doing this book, I went to a lot of insiders, and I said, can you help me? You know more than I do about things, please help me. I got many kind of reactions. And so I have a, mine is not an opinion without basis. I went around, I've done a lot of focus groups, I've done a lot of, uh, you know, uh, interviews and, and surveys. 
and I found a, a certain group of insiders have been well fed by the American Orientalists. They've been given their foreign tours every so many years. They've been uh, introduced and brought in so that they will not raise their voice. In fact, many of them were very, at first, very enthusiastic about helping me when it was a very generic critique, when I didn't want to name names. But I said, okay, I'm going to name names because it doesn't make sense to do a critique without, without saying who you are criticizing and without quoting exactly what he said that you, wants to, that you want to disagree with. It really is a shallow thing. So I do want to name names and if you're going to help me, then you know, you should know these, these are, I would send them different articles and works of people in the Pollock School of Indology and the, a certain segment, I wouldn't say the majority, but I would say definitely a certain segment said, we will not do anything that opposes these guys. We are, we are, we are very much on your side privately, sir, sir, privately, don't tell anybody, but privately, I tell you, I'm, you're doing good work. Sir, keep it up, but I, I can't get involved. This is very true. This is very true. So I'm just sharing with you what all I go through. So then we can have some fun uh, conversation. So that's one. Then there is the, the other kind, other extreme, who are totally bombastic and dismissive. Why we need to know about them? Truth is in my heart, sir. Truth is in my heart. Truth, is, truth will not change. Let's have a samosa chai Sir, why are you worrying? That sort of thing. So it's sort of like a complete abandonment, a complete dismissiveness towards uh, the outsider. Not wanting to take it seriously. Escapism. Escapism. Ki, uh, you know, Brahma is the same. Uh, sir, nobody can touch. This, this kind of an argument. I mean, complete, uh, uh, I mean, I give a very good Vedanta in response to this, which I don't have time for, but if anybody asks me a question, I can tell you, Vedanta in response, because Vedanta is not about escapism. You got to, you got to go through the Vivarika. You got to, your whole dharma is through the Vivarika. You have to take this seriously. Otherwise, there would be no karma. There would be no yam niyam. There would be no, uh, you know, uh, path. There would be no reason for a yagna because all those things you could say don't need. So that's the opposite side. That is the side that's, uh, that dismisses with big bombastic things. Then there is people who say they will join your, join this uh, team of insiders, good Indology and all that, but they lack rigor. They might be lazy. They will talk big. They'll write a great letter back saying, I'm, I'm on, sir. But, you know, they will not produce anything. There is a lot of talk, but that hard work, tapasya, is lacking. Which, this is hard work. It's not just emotional. I, I call them emotional kshatriyas who are, who are claiming to be intellectual kshatriyas. It is very difficult, much more difficult to be an intellectual kshatriya. Emotional, you know, talk very nicely and all that about us and blame others and get angry. Until two or three years ago, it used to be, sir, Sonia Gandhi will go away, problem will be solved. I'm so glad that Sonia Gandhi has gone away, not only because she's gone away for other reasons, but also because now I can no longer get that excuse. Now when I tell them this problem, that one, one less excuse. I tell them, okay, now, now we got this problem. Okay, so tell me how is this particular problem been solved in the last three years? It hasn't been. So you can't blame all those guys. So now you please take some responsibility and let's do something. So it helps me in that sense, okay, because it's one less cop-out. Then there is this... Uh, Lack of 
you see lack of knowledge of english is a serious problem for our people i'm glad that they are sanskrit educated and like the chinese doing mandarin these people should do in their our language but you need people like us who can translate for them from our point of view the westerners and the people they have trained in india huge army of indian leftists they are trained in sanskrit by the way i i i want you to know that there the there is a flood of indian people with hindu names getting phd's in sanskrit and sanskrit studies and indology from this particular school of indology that have been sent back to india you probably heard of ananya vajpai for example and there's bunch of others and so they first get trained in marxism she came from jnu and then they are sent here to be trained enough sanskrit to be dangerous enough sanskrit to know what's where what to point out how to hit back here and there okay not from the shraddha point of view but as an opponent who wants to know more about you to hit you back so this uh, th- this issue of uh, w- w- this issue of rigor we lack this issue of uh, lack of idiom lack of knowledge of english and idiom so what is happened is because the whole discourse is gone to english not only language but also the f- western philosophy is being used so for instance i will tell you the f- the argument that pollock has about how to interpret parmartika which is the domain the realm of the transcendence and vyavarika which is the worldly realm and their relationship and why one should be discarded or not the other his whole theory on this which is very important is based on a man called vico now you people probably nobody would raise hand or maybe one or two if i said do you know about vico so our tradition we never heard of this and yet that theory that siddhanta of foreign videshi siddhanta is being used to interpret our tradition in a way that none of us can respond and refute because we don't know what he's talking about but we better not we dare not open our mouth and say i don't know what you're talking about because then he'll say you are useless so we are useless because we don't understand the videshi point of view about us that's how colonized we are that's how much fear we have that's how much inferiority complex we have so this is then you know then there are people like gramsci who was the head of the founder of the uh, italian communist party then there his theory is used is here then there is uh, benjamin walter benjamin he was from the he is one of the founding fathers of the uh, frankfurt school marxism the, those theories are used to come up with the theory of sanskrit and why sanskrit traveled and what is its relationship with uh, this thing and that thing and all kind of a whole argument on uh, history and philosophy of our tradition based on those people's lens and this has been going on for 30 40 years and nobody has bothered to even take notice of it so you see our people i don't blame them they don't know these things how are they going to respond if they don't know these things that is why we need people a team of us who are english speakers who understand western thought who who, who are confident who have nothing to i have nothing to gain they, they can't hire me or fire me so i have nothing to lose so i can say what i say and they can shout at me and uh, blame me accuse me but fine i'm used to it i'm thick skinned so we need such people to do this what we call purva paksha means understand the other so to understand all these people what they are writing we need people who are english speaking people who are on their wavelength people who can step into their skin and figure out what they are saying and be able to come up with, uh, with with you know here is a simple this is a kind of a primer for uh 
people from the traditional side to read and average person to read and understand in, uh, in a few hundred pages what I have digested and summarized out of several thousand pages. So it's a primer because those several thousand pages would be very difficult. In fact, I went to a place and um, one guy stood up and said, no, no, we can read all this stuff. So I said, okay, I'll give you a sample. And I, I put uh, on the slide, I put uh, one paragraph of Pollock. I said, anybody here tell, tell me what he's saying? And it was so heavy, so convoluted, jargon, convoluted stuff. I mean, all these Latin verbs and whatever. And throwing names of various Western thinkers. Nobody would know. So you see, there is also... Uh, some of it is honest and genuine. They, these are Westerners trained in their own classics, Greek, Latin, their thought and they are using it. It's like if a, if a person who is a Sanskrit person trained in Vedanta were going out and teaching something to some culture in the world which he thought is lower and he would use his own ideas and jargon. Yeah. And he wouldn't think that he's doing anything wrong because that's what he knows. So in a sense the Western Indology is doing that to us. You see. So uh, I had a boss... Uh, in uh, my corporate days in the US and uh, he, whenever he found somebody giving him all this gobbledygook stuff, he would say, if you cannot dazzle them with brilliance, baffle them with bullshit. <laughs> so, so our, our people are people getting baffled with bullshit and very happy, very wow, you know, wow. And you see all these guys in our media, come one idiot after another. I mean, they don't understand, but they are in awe. They are in awe. If you want to sit down and, and cross-examine this fellow without letting him switch topics, run, jump around here and there, but really put him down, pin him down, most of these guys who are full of awe of, these, of the Western Indologists really don't even understand. They haven't even read it properly. So you, this is a serious problem of, uh, uh, of the takeover of idiom, language, the lens to be used. It has been taken over and... The problem is not that somebody else is using that lens. The problem is that we've accepted it. You become colonized when you accept. You're not colonized as long as you resist. Okay? And, and, and since we've become colonized for so long, a guy like me coming along resisting is a sort of considered like very rude and all that. You know? then why are you talking like that? I have lost a lot of friends from... I, I came from this very prestigious uh, St. Stephen's College, uh, Delhi. And uh, th these guys are somebody's cabinet secretary somebody's, uh, you know, this industrialist, that, you know, Indian Foreign Service ambassador here and there. So when I go back, they have this reunion of friends from, you know, so I'm, I go there. And uh, they all accept he come from U.S. and all that. They, they want a, a certain kind of idea, image, a certain stereotype they have of what I should be talking about. And the moment I talk like this, they all sort of wonder, what happened to you? Why? <laughs> What's the problem? You've done well. You should enjoy life. Why, why are you bothered with all this? So they're all sold out. I mean, it's, very, it's a very difficult job. I'm telling you, Mukeshi, this is so difficult. I, you know, it's like badnami hoti. It's like people, my own relatives, friends saying, why are you like this now? Because they would rather that I go with the flow. It's easier to go with the flow. It's very difficult to resist. You know, but I feel that I'll get nothing out of it. But it's like you plant fruit trees and some generation in the future will get something out of it. I think we have to start a multi-generational resistance and counter-movement which will have some value down the road. Otherwise, we'll be finished off if nobody bothers to do this. So these are some of the problems. Now, the, in the, the, in, uh, the insiders also lack confidence. They lack confidence. Even if we sit together, what I did is I paired an English-speaking, solid Hindu who understands Vedanta, but he's English-speaking, 
you know, they're, they're young people in Art of Living, in Chinmaya Mission, and ma many places, Swami Dhyanan Saraswati students, uh, people like you guys, uh, the Sanskrit Bharati people, where I took a, would take a good English speaking person who can go through the works of an Indologist and, who, and, who, and so on, and pair them with a Sanskrit person. And say, okay, now the Sanskrit person will uh, uh, learn from this person. This person will be the middleman. He'll tell, he'll tutor and say what the Westerners are saying. And then the Sanskrit person will uh, come up with answers. He'll come up with the responses from the tradition. I found a lot of these people are scared also. They, even, even in that sort of, they don't want to be known. They'll say, no, no, let the other fellow write it in his name. I will spare, say, behind the scene. This kind of a fear. So there is a lack of confidence and a kind of a, a fear that I find. And then there is a, a kind of reaction I also get, turf protection from the insider. Who are you? Who are you? I, I, I know I can chant more than you. I, I, I know this, that, and they have a, I call them the iPod. That you have the Sanskrit iPod. Okay, you know, you can chant, but I have an iPod, I can do more than that. So the question is, do you understand the idiom? Do you understand the context of the argument? Do you understand what we are up against? You cannot give a reply until you understand what the, like Mukherjee said, if you look at the multiple stages of uh, solving a problem, uh, as you said, uh, you first have to understand the problem and so on. So do you understand the Western thought that we want to rebuttal? So you have to first know enough to do that. Just going on chanting, uh, you know, even if you are an iPod with a, with a search engine and somebody says one word and you keep chanting all that. You know, a lot of our people are basing a lot of memory and a search engine, so the moment you tell them one word or one topic, they quickly chant a lot of stuff. But that, while that is good, that's not what constitutes a thesis or an argument. It, it doesn't constitute a, a rebuttal or a debate. You, you need to understand, be able to understand what the other guy is saying and build a logical argument. So this requires training our people more than just language and text, but debating skills. What I would like to do is pick a topic from what somebody has said and have, a, have 10 people. Five people will be outsiders, five will be insiders. The outsiders will read and understand their point of view, the outsider's point of view, and represent it accurately. So let's say I'll be Pollock and I will st uh, st uh, represent his view and his arguments and debate. And then against me will be a group of five who are insiders, they have to rebuttal, they have to give responses. So this requires training, I call it the intellectual Kshatriya training. We have to do this intellectual Kshatriya. In the old days, uh, Vedantins and Buddhists used to do this with each other. I talked to a Buddhist and uh, he's, from, he's a Tibetan Buddhist follower and he says that even now in his academy, uh, they're following the old system and one of the things you do during your day is you go to the debating court and you are assigned a team. So you may be assigned the Advait team, okay? Even though you're a Buddhist, but you'll be assigned the Advait team. So for the next few weeks, you learn everything those guys are saying, such that you can stand up and give a lecture as an Advaitin, arguments as an Advaitin, all the things that they are going to say. And only then, only when you master what the Advaitin is saying, then you'll be assigned the Madhyamika Buddhist team to go rebuttal. That's how they're training. And that's not something new. That's what, it's not something in the, in the presidential debates they're uh, practicing like that. You know, they, they have somebody be the opponent who hit at them like the opponent will so they can practice. That's how the batsman practices against bowlers. He gets the best or toughest bowlers. But this is our, our tradition of debate to learn it in this way. The Purva Paksha, you have to understand the other from his point of view. And the Uttar Paksha, then you step back and give the response. 
So we need to create this, these kind of teams and maybe the Purupaksha is better done by English speaking people who can access what the other side is saying. You know, so this is a, mainly a Purupaksha. And I'm wanting the traditional people to come and understand it and give the Uttar Paksha. I've given some Uttars, I've given some suggested responses. But mainly I'm trying to explain what the other side is saying. How much time do we have left? How much? Okay, okay, great. So I'll go fast now. Okay. So I mentioned, I mentioned the, some of the issues of, uh, uh, you know, outsiders, some of the issues of insiders. And I have to navigate both. I mean, I get hit from both sides. So I am equal opportunity target, you know. So the, uh, the outsiders say, who are you, Waba, the nationalists, chauvinists, saffron, all those things, they use they, their vocabulary. They don't even have to think, they just push one button and they, it comes out, you know, in one article after another. And then the insiders, many of them very excited and happy. Privately, almost all of them very happy. But uh, in terms of being able to then take it forward and do anything about it, mixed, some of them will say, we can't join you. Now, I'll tell you, we have a, we've started a conference. Some brilliant guys in uh, South India have taken this book and they've, uh, they've started uh, a conference series uh, to do Purv Paksh of Sheldon Pollock. They're going to do, a, 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 they've started this Purv Paksh of Western Indology and the Uttar Paksh from the Vedic side. And every year it will be a different Western Indologist. So first year is Pollock. Next year will be someone, next year will be someone. So in 5-10 years we will train, we'll train people who know how to take on the big giants of Western Indology. So this year is Pollock. So they are going to have two or three conferences leading to a book in which everybody will have written one one chapter doing Purpaksh and Uttarpaksh on some particular issue. Pollock's theory of Ramayana is an issue. Pollock's theory on Shastra he's got some pretty nasty things to say. That's an issue. Like that. His theory that Sanskrit has been dead for a thousand years, Hindu kings killed it, even though the Muslims tried to revive it. This is theory. <laughs> this is theory. This is theory. You know, we can't, we, we, have to, we have to take it seriously and give a response. You know. So, uh, so we, when we, when these guys uh, did a call for papers that we want uh, traditional scholars, you know, a lot of traditional scholars, I mean, they came up with these kind of problems. Some of them said we cannot be officially doing it, as if there is something wrong. Uh, some of them said uh, we don't know how to read their stuff. It's too much heavy English. Yeah? And some of them want to do it, but they're, 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 they produce their abstract shows a very kind of a superficial, generic, high-level uh, approach rather than going deep into it. But some of them very good. So we, we have to work very hard to create this intellectual Kshatriya army of people. So this is, this is some of the things that, uh, that I'm involved in trying to help and champion. Um, and then uh, uh, I'll close with uh, one point, uh, uh, since I have very little time. I haven't talked about a single point of substance uh, as to what bothers me uh, about Sheldon Pollock. And just telling you that uh, there are many issues is not good enough. So I, I should at least tell you one point. So I will tell you the the foundation of Pollock over 40 years of work spread in maybe several hundreds of papers, dozens of books, thousands of pages, is that it's, it, it's basically what the left would love, what the atheists would love to have a Sanskrit scholar telling them this, giving them this ammunition. And that is that he is removing the sacredness from the Vedic tradition 
removing in the sense either it's unimportant or it's abusive and socially oppressive it's created problems for dalits and women and it's not it's not able to advance you can't have progress because they're going on chanting repeating the same stuff and it's all mumbo jumbo it's meaningless it's primitive so that desacral he called it called it desacralizing means removing the sacred is a very important part of his method so when he looks at a text he's looking at it from that point of view and so when he's teaching that he's teaching the marxist oriented person to look for abuse look for oppression so even if the intention of a text was very nice he will say oh it's a man saying it not a woman or you know it's a brahmin saying it and the other guy you know so he look for something even though it was not the intention or exaggerate a problem now i know there are problems and i fully admit that there are problems and we have to deal with them i'm not denying that but this is a kind of an exaggeration and always looking for those problems and nothing else and so he's coined a term called political philology uh, the word philology philology is the uh, the method of uh, or the discipline to uh, look for knowledge look for meaning in texts so trying to make sense of a text so somebody there's a text what exactly does it mean so like when your acharya is making sense of a particular gita shloka he's doing philology you know he's 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 interpreting that text for you to make to help you understand it in a sensible way so the, the philology word has existed for a long time and every culture has its own methods and own philology what is unique and original in one of the i would say 10 most original things that pollock has done he's he's coined the term political philology and underscored political which means i'm going to i'm going to look at texts to find out what what was what, what was political what was the political motive of those texts what was the political motive in the vedas what is the political motive who's being oppressed who's dominating who is uh, uh, you know exploiting whom so the social uh, uh, exploitation and political domination motive is what the philology should uncover and expose that is called political philology and paper after paper he's telling his students you guys should become political philologists okay and he's scolding the earlier orientalists who did not do enough of that so uh, political philology is his diagnostic lens that's how you go looking for what's wrong with these texts yeah and then the other term he's a uh, uh, very beautiful term he's he's coined is called liberation philology you would say wow you going to get liberated but that liberation is not moksha kind of he he's talking about liberating the dalits from the the uh, you know uh, the whole structure of vedas vedas liberating the women and the dalits and the oppressed and the underclass and the subalterns liberating them from the vedic system and the hindu system is what he calls liberation philology so liberation philology is the cure and political philology is the diagnostic so political philology is being taught to diagnose how what is wrong in the ramayana yeah male dominated kshatriya against local people you know masses all that kind of stuff that's the that's a diagnostic tool and then then people should learn liberation philology so we can go and liberate the dalits we can get into uh, human rights interventions we can make human rights interventions in india so he he supports many of these petitions he initiates and supports he and his students many of these petitions against modi and against this uh, you know not only modi coming to wharton some years back but modi's visit to california a year ago 
uh, and this recent JNU thing, there was this support all the JNU fellows, JNU riots and all that. These guys are involved in that. They, they, their names are in all of them. It's not a secret. It's all there. So I'll conclude by telling you what this picture is about. The picture on top of the book is a photograph I took, which you're not allowed to take. And, and uh, uh, it, it, there is a chapel in Oxford where there's a huge wall with this carving. And it says, Sir William Jones and the Pandits. And I, when I saw it, I just said, my God, I got to take a picture of this. So more than 15 years ago, I knew one day I'll use it. So it took me many visits and tried to smuggle a camera through this fellow, that fellow, but you know, finally we got the picture. Details will not be disclosed. <laughs> now this picture, William Jones was the Supreme Court judge of, of, in Calcutta, the Supreme Court of India, which was set up by the East India Company. So imagine East India Company set up something called the Supreme Court of India. Which East India, it's like, you know, some uh, Microsoft goes and set up the Supreme Court of Mexico, something like that. It, or maybe Trump would do that. Yeah. <laughs> set up a, their Supreme Court and put their, your man and say, okay, we are going to adjudicate cases. So this is the judge of the Supreme Court. Now, they had a clever idea. He said that, you know, we should, ma we should let the Hindus think that we are adjudicating according to their own laws. Then they will think that we are doing the right thing. So he, want, he came up with something. He uh, compiled a group of pundits and basically to create a book of Hindu laws which would fit his idea. So first he created, uh, his predecessor actually had done that, it didn't work, had too many obvious errors in it. So he said, I'm going to translate the Manusmriti myself. So you know how long it takes to learn Sanskrit, you guys know, and then to master Manusmriti. But he claimed from the time he arrived in India, he claimed in two years, he had created the Hindu laws by translating Manusmriti. He claimed that. And he, uh, he in this he says, the caption here he says, a caption written under this carving says, he gave the Hindus their laws. So he was called the, just, he called himself the Justinian of India. Justinian meaning the Roman emperor who gave the Roman laws, made the laws of the Roman people. So he is the one who is sort of the founding father of Indians having, Hindus having laws. We didn't, we were lawless people, we didn't even know. And so we should be grateful to him. So the strange thing is, He's shown on a throne, dictating, and a bunch of pandits sitting on the floor, looking dazed and learning from him and taking his dictation and confused. So it's sort of like, uh, you know, he's the, he's, the big he's the big shot and talking down at them. And, you know, and the caption, he gave the Hindus their laws. This is the kind of thing. So the reason I put it there is I explain inside that 200 years later, the British has been replaced by the Americans. And if we were to do a similar equivalent thing for Sheldon Pollock, it would say he gave the Hindus their human rights. Because he's trying to teach this liberation philology is, I'll tell you, uh, political philology is, I'll tell you what's wrong, and liberation philology, I'll tell you how to fix it. So he's into the human rights business. But there would not be pandits sitting on the floor. He himself would be dressed as a pandit. And sitting around the table would be billionaires writing checks to fund it. So that's, the, that's how the old image uh, has shifted to a modern image of today. Well, thank you very much, and I'll be happy to take questions.